gigantic. Now there's two more steps in the first nine. Eight and nine. And they are two of the most beautiful things that will ever happen to anybody in their entire lifetime. If you haven't taken these steps, take them. We made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. We made direct amends to such people wherever possible. Except one to do so would injure them or others. You take these steps and you feel like you've had an inside shower. You feel clean clear through. Don't delay it. Do it. I got to tell you a little thing. Probably said it around here before. But some years back, I got a call one Friday night from a guy in Whittier. And he says, Chuck, I'm sitting here with a six-gun in my lap. I'm going to blow my brains out. But Jim said for me not to shoot myself until I talk to you. And I said, what do you got to say? And I said, well, you called me on a bad night. <laughs> I said, I'm talking tonight, tomorrow night, and Sunday night. But Monday night's open. Now, if you want to see me come down here Monday night, and if you don't, go ahead and blow your brains out. And Monday night, about 7.30, the doorbell rang. And it was this guy. And he came in. And at 2.30 in the morning, we're right where we are right now. We made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to the law. Made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. <coughs> Now, this chap was also a gambler. He'd lost a bunch of money he didn't have, and he had lost it to professional gamblers. And I was sitting there telling the guy, now you got to go to these people. And you got to tell them that you're not the big shot you would have had them believe, that you're an alcoholic, that you found a way to live that might let you live the rest of your life one day at a time without drinking. And one of the conditions of the program is that you make amends. And that's why you're here. Now, you got to tell these people, I admit the debt. It's mine. And I'll pay you when I can. But I ain't got no money. And he says, uh-oh. He says, I can't do that. Why? He says, it'd kill me. And I said, so what? You won't have suicide on your mind. <laughs> and the old boy started laughing. And he's still laughing. And he's walking the streets. A free man. And he don't owe anybody anything. What a deal it is to get rid of that burden. with eight and nine. Now we got three more steps. But they have a, I think, a little different function. The first nine steps are the surrender steps. Those steps are designed to squeeze us right out of ourselves. 
to get rid of that ego that has ridden us like a Simon Legree for a lifetime. In total and abject surrender. And I am one who believes that if you and I honestly take these first nine steps to the best of our ability, we will, at number ten, be surrendered. I don't think it's possible for us to go through this honestly and not be surrendered. And we still surrendered with ten. We continued to take personal inventory and when we're wrong, promptly admitted it. This does not mean that we go back and redo steps four and five. In my book, now many people tell me, look, when I took step four and step five in the first place, there was much that I couldn't admit that I didn't even remember. And uh, so I got to do it over. I don't believe this. I think that anybody that takes step five twice is bragging. <laughs> now, if you and I are working with wet drunk, we are continuously sharing these things. Every 12-step call we go on, brings up something that we'd forgotten about. And we share it with this new guy. We're continuously dumping garbage. If we're busy doing the things that our program tells us to do, which is carrying the message to the alcoholic who still suffers. Now, one more little thing in passage. Some guy said to me not too long ago, had been in the program longer, a little longer than I have. And he says, Chuck, he says, I've quit working with wet drunks. He says, I got tired of them puking on me. We heard that word last night, or I wouldn't have used it. <laughs> I think it's a lousy word, but it sure is expressive. And I said, you're quitting now? And he says, yeah. Well, I said, I'm not. I'm going to keep right on going, just like I'm going. Because I'd much rather be the pukey than the pukar. <laughs> then every once in a while, some guy tells me, he says, you've been sober 25 years. How do you know how a drunk feels? You've lost touch. I said, is that so? You can't lose touch when you're working with wet drunks. You're just as old in this program as your last go-round with a wet drunk. Because you see yourself always when you're out there doing that work. And that's the wonderful thing about sharing the message. You can't get old in the program. And you can't forget. Step 10 says I look at my days and see how nearly I lived 
according to my principles of recovery and write myself. Two things that Pep Step 10 has done for me that are beautiful. The first one I can now say I don't know. <laughs> In all my drinking career, I could not say I don't know. You could have asked me anything and I would have told you. Einstein's theory was very simple to me. You could have asked me how God created the earth and I would have told you. And I very likely would have said, now on the third day, we did best and so. <laughs> I could not say I don't know. And now I can say I don't know. And now I last 25 years in business. I could say I don't know. But if it was important, I would say to my people, I'll find out. Tomorrow I'll know. But today I don't know. And it's beautiful. How easy it is to say I don't know. And the next thing is, I was wrong. God, this is a switch. You saw that lady up here talking this afternoon? She mentioned the fact, I believe, that we've been working in double harness for 46 years. And I catch myself saying to her, well, honey, I was wrong. Now, that is a, is a downright shame. <laughs> to your own wife after 46 years. You say, I'm wrong. I, 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 thought, I, I thought, sure, I was right, but you were, you, you were right all the time. I was wrong. And how easy is it makes life? It's a sense. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And I don't mind telling you. <clears throat> so that's number 10, and now we got 11. If it weren't for 11, I wouldn't be here, and I wouldn't be anyplace else where free men assemble. I would be dead long, long ago. I would have been pushing up daisies. Because, you see, I can't run my life. <clears throat> I can't run my wife, my kids, my business, me, or anything else. I had 46 years to run my life. And I ran it right into the bottom of the snake pit. And I gave it one hell of a good college try. <laughs> I gave it my wife, our kids, our home, my job, my health, my sanity, and my money. And if I'd had anything else, I'd have put it in. <laughs> and I lost. So there's nothing in me that even wants to believe that I can run anything. And thank God I don't have to. Because I got step 11. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious awareness of the living presence of the Almighty. That's the way I like it. The book says, Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God, as we understood it. Praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry it out. Now I've lived by this step for 25 years and 6 months. I totally 
depend on guidance and direction. Without it, I could not live. And how easy it is when we depend on guidance and direction. How easy it is. And I have a little simple deal on this, too. I get up in the morning and I say, look, Dad, I'm reporting for duty. Now I'm going to move it around. I'm going to do the best I can with what i got today. And all I want out of here is a little guidance and direction to probably carry it out. Sure, thank you. And I go about my business. Doing what's indicated. Totally by ear. You play everything by ear because you can't build a roof over your head and get guidance and direction. So, you play it by ear, expecting guidance and direction, and I get it. You might say, how do you know? I got the best reason that I can imagine. I never had it so good. <laughs> Pretty good, isn't it? Never had it so good. This is the only easy life I ever knew, the only good life that's ever been mine in 69 years of life. And that's a pretty good indicator. I love 7-Eleven, and I live by it. Now we got one more. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, and there's an implication here, too. I don't believe that it's quite cricket to believe that I can have a spiritual awakening as a result of 11 steps that I took. <laughs> and I further believe that it's impossible to take the first 11 and not have a spiritual awakening. Because this is the way to get a spiritual awakening. In my way of thinking. Now many times we have a spiritual awakening and we don't know what it is. For instance, many years ago I was jacking at a noon meeting on South Broadway in Los Angeles. I remembered very well, it was raining very hot. And we had a Nice little group in there, luncheon meeting, or a noon meeting. And uh, after the thing was over, a man came up to me, just about my own age, <coughs> beautifully dressed man, looked good. And he says to me, Chuck, when in the hell am I going to have this spiritual awakening? He says, people keep saying, keep coming back, keep coming back, keep coming back, and it'll happen. But he says, don't. And I said, well, how long have you been coming back? And he said, eight years. <laughs> and he looked real good, you know. And I said to him, uh, well, I've had any trouble with drinking in this eight years? He said, no, I haven't had a drink since my first meeting. Oh, I said, you haven't had any since your first meeting. And he said, no. And seeing how good he was looking and how well he was dressed, I said, well, what else has happened to you? 
and he started reeling them off. And everything good that happened to that old boy. <clears throat> the only thing he hadn't done, he hadn't shot a horse. <laughs> and by this time, I'm laughing like a hyena. And he got very mad at me. Because this is very serious with him. And he started to tell me about it. And I said, man, wake up. Put your fist over before you came in. And he says, no. He said, if I could have wouldn't have come. But you came and you haven't had to have a drink since your first meeting. And he said, yes. And I said, did all these things happen to you? These good things happened to you before you came in? No. But you came here and all these good things have happened in your life. He says, yes. As a man, you've had it for eight years. All you got to do is to see where, from whence it came now and start thanking God with every breath you draw. And you'll be home free. See, so many of us think a spiritual awakening is something mysterious or ethereal or something that might light on us or might miss us. <laughs> Again, I'm a very simple guy. I think spiritual things are good things. What about eating? Now, many of you say, oh, that's, that's a very physical thing. You get hungry and eat. And I say, oh, you get hungry and eat. But I'm not a guy that don't eat. You're looking at a guy at a guy that has gone for two weeks trying to get to a chili joint at the exact second when I could swallow. <laughs> and it has to be a dead heat. <laughs> if you get to a half block too soon you don't stop. And if you overshoot, you come back tomorrow. <laughs> One of the great experiences of my life, I went to talk in San Fernando, a little old town out in the north end of the San Fernando Valley, many years back. And the old guy got up here, he, uh, I think, was one of Buttermilk's relatives. <laughs> And he got up at this podium and he says, I came here. At first he said his name. And he says, I came here in a $14 suit with $35 worth of chili down in front of it. <laughs> and I almost jumped up and kissed it. I was his brother, you know. Now, I've been eating for 25 years, and I believe that I have the same experience. Every time I smell, eat, taste, and enjoy food, that the devout have when they take the blessed fact. This is a tremendous thing for me, because I've gone long periods of time without a solid meal in my body. What about sleeping? 
Ah, you say that's physical. You get sleep here and you go to sleep. Is that so? <laughs> How about going to bed and getting up and getting up and going to bed and going to bed and getting up and getting up and going to bed and never sleep? <laughs> and every joint's coming unglued. You're dying. And you yell out in total despair, God, please, let me sleep for 20 minutes. Just 20 minutes. And there's no sleep. Oh, what a deal to lie down and go to sleep. This is very spiritual to me. Because it's good living. It's good living. What about people? I came here without a people in the world. <laughs> I was fresh out of people, including my own blood. Nobody left but me, and I hated my inside. And now I got one of the biggest families on the face of the earth. I got people all over this globe who love me and share with me. And people whom I love and with whom I share. And this is the difference between a full and an empty life. And particularly, is it beautiful when you come to see that God is people? What a thing this is. And how richly blessed Am I, who came here with nobody, and have all of you? Beautiful. So to me, the spiritual life is the good life. And again, I think it's impossible for you and me to honestly take the first 11 steps and not have a spiritual awakening even though we don't know what to call it. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. Now this gives me a lifetime job. I've got it spelled out for a lifetime to carry this message to other alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of my affairs. And this is all I've done for 25 years and six months. This has been my life for 25 years and six months. And it's fantastic. What an amazingly wonderful thing it is that by doing the thing, we learn that St. Francis knew what he was talking about. When he said, for it is in giving that we receive. For it is in giving that we receive. And we never know it until we do it. Now, how long have I been up here? How long have I been Huh? What time is it? 29. 29. Oh, I... What? <laughs> Hell, I got all reason. 
I'm just getting underway. Is that guy lying to me? No, that's right. That's right. It's quarter to something. It's quarter to something. Yeah. Well, I'm going to talk to a couple. January 1946, I totally and completely accepted the fact that everything dear to me in life was gone and that I was not entitled to have it back. Now I'm going to say that again because it's most important to me and it's most meaningful to me. I totally and completely accepted the fact that everything dear to me in life was gone and that I was not entitled to have it back, including my own wife and our own kids and my job and my health and everything else. And it became very necessary that I be sober to die. Not because I wanted sobriety for me, because I didn't want anything for me. My life was over. I knew I was going to die. I'd come that close to it the time before when the oxygen squad brought me back. So I knew I was going to die, and I didn't care. But I didn't want to die with the record. I didn't want my wife and the kids to remember me as nothing but a tongue-chewing, babbling idiot drunk. And I said to myself that morning, having just come to from a four-week blackout, laying dead drunk, taking the clock around. And having seen myself as I was, I said to myself, if I ever live to get out of this bed, I will find alcoholics and none. Strange as it might seem, from that moment of commitment until right now, I've never had a drink or a pill. Now, again, I had a lot of dying to do. Every one of you who have done a little drinking knows that every nerve center in my body was yelling for booze. They say there are a few billion of them. But everything in me was, how long can I live without a drink? And for some reason, I didn't have to take one, although I had to die and die and die. Many times in the past, my mind had come and gone in a withdrawal period, like turning the light on and off. But this time, it went and it didn't come. And I would sit there for days, seemingly, knowing that the cord was broken. This time I'd never be sane again. I was just going to remain insane until I died. But again, for some reason, I didn't have to drink. And I eventually started getting better. And I went out and found this program. And I've been here ever since. Now... Knowing that I 
my wife and children were gone and should be gone, and that I wasn't entitled to have them back. I never made any attempt to get them back. But in trying to rub out the record, I had to do things for them that I could do. Just because I wanted to, for free and for fun. No, no strings at all. Just doing things. Because you can't rub out trading. You rub out doing things without a price tag on. And that's what I did. So at home, without even knowing it, I started right in, fulfilling one of the greatest conditions in life trying to do something for somebody without a price tag on it. The same thing was true in business. My boss had sent word to the house that if I ever stepped foot in the plant again, he was going to throw me through the window. Because, you see, on the Friday before Christmas, 1945, he had done a very fine thing for me. Instead of shooting me, as he had every right to do, he gave me 3000 bucks for a Christmas present. Telling me first that he was going to take a little pressure off of me and maybe I wouldn't have so much trouble next year. And of course, I got drunk on the way home. The one thing that's worse for an alcoholic than bad fortune is good fortune. <laughs> and I never showed up till last of January. And the old boy missed me. to go back there because you paid for me, paid me for something I didn't do. And I went down there knowing that he was going to throw me through the window. But I had to go. And he came in to do it. <laughs> like a bull in a china closet. And he could have done it. Because I wasn't healthy. <laughs> I was right puny. <laughs> And when he started asking me, I said, Vic, leave me alone. I don't work for you anymore. I'm down here to clean up this desk. I'm here to do the things that you paid me for last year that I didn't do. And as soon as I get even with you, I'll get the hell out of your own home power. You'll never owe me a penny as long as you live, but for God's sake, leave me alone. I got to get even with you. And he stopped in his tracks. He says, what the hell's happened to you, Charlie? And I said, don't know. And I didn't. Because I hadn't even been to a meeting yet. All I'd done was make up my mind that I was going to do it. But I had to get well enough before I could even find the place. I didn't even know where to look for it. So, I had the same job on hands in my business that I had at home. And I started trying to do things for people that they needed to have done because they wanted to. And that's all I did in business. My business and my 12-step work was one and the same for 25 years. I spent just about equal time in one and the other. And I never made any difference in it. Because, you see, without sobriety, I would have no business. And without the business, I couldn't do the things I was doing. And I'll call it synonymous. And so, things... Went that way with me for 25 years. 
Now in my 11th year, I bought the business for the same and told me how to. And I owned it for the last 13 years that I was in business. And that's impossible. Totally impossible. Because I didn't try to do that. I didn't do anything for 25 years for any reason but just to do something for somebody because I wanted to. It was an amazing thing because things happened to me that can't happen. Businessmen would sit across the desk from me and look me right in the eye and say, Chuck, you're a damn liar. Business cannot be done this way. And I just laughed because I didn't know it. <laughs> now, a year ago, last October, I sold up. And if I don't live too long, I'll never be hungry again. And that's impossible. But it's the way it is. Now, in closing, I'm totally convinced after 25 years and six months that the first two words of the Lord's Prayer mean exactly what they From the top of my longest hair to the soles of my feet, I believe that the first two words of the Lord's Prayer mean exactly what they say. Our Father. You remember when they said to the carpenter, Master teaches to pray. He didn't say, well, I'll get yourself a red rub and point it east and say abba-dabba a few times and my father and I might help you a little. They said, Master teaches to pray and he says, after this manner, pray ye. Our Father. His father, your father, and mine. Now, if God is our father, we're his kids. And this is the, this is the most meaningful thing that could happen to anybody, if it be true. And I totally believe that it's true. Now. There's a little verse someplace that says, Fear not, little flock. It's the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. And I believe this, just as I believe I'm standing here. But there's a catch in it. It's not on my terms. It's on his. And again, his terms are so simple that the world don't know anything about it. His terms are that I go about his business, that I act like his kid, that I help his children do things they need to have done because they want to. That's the term. How do I know? Because that's all I've done for 25 years and six months. And again, I never had it so good. I never had it so good. I didn't come here to find all these things. I came here for sobriety. 
The first discovery was after six months that I was sober and had been for six months. The second was that something had happened in the household. Now, these are discoveries, and discoveries always, discoveries always come after the fact. Not before, but after the fact. And I discovered that something had happened in the household. The whole place had changed. It seemed like the war was over. You know. And that was quite a discovery. And the third was out of the office. When I discovered that I was still down there trying to clean up that desk. And everything was going good. And the fourth was that something had happened to my being. Not only was I not drinking. <clears throat> and I might say to you, and I've been called a liar in open meeting for this too. Because I have lived for 25 years and six months without one conscious desire to drink. Thank God. Because always when I had a conscious desire, I got drunk. And so I think it's pretty nice when I don't have to have a conscious desire to drink. And I've had 25 and six years and six months of that. So, <clears throat> the next discovery was that something had happened in business. And things were going good. And the next one was that my life was good. My state of being, there's something about it that was altogether different. Life was good in body and in spirit. And that was a pretty good discovery. And maybe after five or six years, I discovered that I was never alone anymore. And for a guy that had walked alone to the end of the line and then crawled down the road of peace, this isn't bad. Never alone anymore. I had a God of my very own. And wherever I am, he is. And this is fantastic. And I have one more little thing I'll share and then sit down. I share everything in life with my partner in the business today. I've come to believe that there's no such thing as an answer to this thing called life that does not include a personally acceptable conscious partnership of the living God that made us in the entire business of living. I think we're only 10% alive until we make this discovery. And then things get good. And so I discovered that I had a God in my very own. I share everything in life with me. I share the bad and the good. And I do it like a kid. I said, look, Dad, look what I did yesterday. Now, isn't this a lousy thing for a monkey like me to do? I know better. I even know why I did it. It was so necessary that I make an impression, you know. And I don't like it, and you don't like it. And I'm going to do better, and with your help, I'll do a lot better. Sure, thank you. And I dump it, and I never pick it up again. It's gone. I never pick it up again. And when the good thing happens, I do the same thing with it. I share it with my father. I say, look, father, isn't this terrific? 
It couldn't happen to a bum like me. But it did. And I know where it came from. I sure said. And I dumped that, and I never pick it up again. <clears throat> I think it's just as damaging to you and to me to try to carry the things that are so-called good as the things that are so-called bad. And I get so many things, so many beautiful, beautiful things in my life, such as, for instance, letters, things of that kind. And I read them and cry a little. And I give it to my wife and she reads it. And she says, Chuck, don't you think we ought to keep this for the kids? And I said, put it in the wastebasket. Because, you see, this program to me is life. It's by the grace of God. And it's through you. And it's one day at a time. And I don't want to be cluttered up with a lot of stuff. Because I've got to be able to hear this thing when I pray for guidance and direction. And I don't want a load on my back when I go out there to see that monkey that needs help. And so, I want to be free. And freedom is an inside job. And freedom is alcoholics and non-risk. God bless you.